All right. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter number 8. Exodus chapter 8. This is my old Bible. Got a lot of notes in it. Back in those days when I got this Bible, 1978, it's been had to have it recovered and put back together. It's coming apart. Uh, I used a Rapidiograph ink pen. How many of y'all know what a Rapidiograph ink pen is? Anybody? Okay. It's what architects use. Uh, you can write on onion skin paper with them, just the, the lightest of paper, and it won't tear through. They had little bitty wire nibs inside of them, and they'd move up and down and pump ink, and you had to buy ink and all that stuff. But the long short of it is this. I wrote smaller than the, the text in the Bible. And now that I'm not as young as I used to be, some of my notes, you'll see me hold my Bible up real close like that so I can read them. They're so teensy tiny. And I, uh, the book of Romans is just filled up with stuff like that. It's so small. It's, I don't know what I was thinking about. Wasn't thinking about me getting old. That's for sure. I want to preach to you about what the world's trying to get us to do as Christians. What kind of approach is the world using on us? In, in the book of Exodus, uh, we know that Moses was on the backside of the desert. Uh, he had killed a man, you know, in, in Egypt, and he had to run hide from Pharaoh. He's on the backside of the desert. He's married a, a, a black woman. I think the Bible's pretty plain about that and caused some problems later on with his family. And he has had a, uh, an encounter with God in chapter number 3 where he came up on a bush that was burning but was not consumed. Uh, I think he'd probably seen other bushes ignite in that tremendous heat with the sun shining and get the right reflection. Anything, I guess, that's flammable could catch on fire, but this bush didn't burn up. And so as Moses approaches, God speaks to him from that burning bush and says, take off thy shoe for the place where thou standest is holy ground. And God began to tell him what he was going to do with him. And Moses said, Lord, I'm slow of speech. My tongue is slow. You, you need to send somebody else. And you'll read that God got angry <laughs> with Moses. So when you get encouraged to sing and you say, well, my voice, it's already been tried. It, that's already been tried once. God said, I gave you your voice. So use your voice to honor God. That's a sideline. doesn't come in my preaching. We'll go back over here. Well, Moses argued with God, and eventually God gave him Aaron. But when you get into the Scripture, you find out that Moses spoke as much as Aaron did. Uh, yet Aaron was his, his accomplice or his uh, minister to walk with him. And so God said, I want you to go down to Egypt and bring my people out of Egypt. And he said, well, they're going to ask me what's your name. And he gave him a name that he had not been known by before, it's Jehovah. And so he, he goes back and said, I'm the great I am. I'm the one that, that uh, made you. I made this universe. I'm your God. I am that I am. And so Moses and Aaron go to Egypt, and they go to uh, the elders of Israel first and tell them what's going to happen. And then they go to Pharaoh. In chapter number 5, you hold your place in, verse, in chapter 8, we're going right back over there, but in chapter 5, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go. 
that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. Now note Pharaoh's rude answer. Sounds like Cain answering God. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? Who is this Jehovah? That I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I know not the Lord. We're going to find that out in spades as we move along. Neither will I let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews hath met with us. Let us go, we pray thee, three days' journey into the desert, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. And the king of Egypt said to them, Wherefore do ye, Moses and Aaron, let the people from their burdens get you under your burdens? And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people land now are many, and ye make them rest from their burdens. And Pharaoh commanded the same day the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, Ye shall no more give the people straw to make brick, as heretofore let them go and gather straw for themselves. And the tale of brick, or the amount of bricks, which they did make heretofore, Ye shall lay upon them, ye shall not diminish aught thereof, for they be idle. Therefore they cry, saying, Let us go uh, and sacrifice unto our God, unto our Lord. Now over to chapter number 8. The Jews are in a terrible position, terrible place. Uh, they're slaves. That had happened gradually. There arose a generation that didn't know anything about Joseph, who had saved the nation of Egypt in the book of Genesis. And we believe these are probably Hiskos that had come in. They weren't maybe the normal Egyptian dynasty. And so these people come in and they're smaller ethnic group there in Egypt. And so they're saying, well, there's, look, there's more of these Jews than there is of us. And they're going to turn on us. We've got to put them under bondage. And so for 400 years, they're in bondage. That's a long time. Four generations, the Bible calls it, and... You know, we, we probably gauge a generation nowadays for about 40 years, something like that. But it was 100 back in those days. And so here they are, and they're saying, let us go. And they're, now they're in a bad strait. They don't get the straw that they need to help make the, the brick material hold together as they cooked it. And they're out there scrabbling around, and they get beat and, and tortured and, and persecuted because they can't keep up. And the people say to Moses, you, you've made us to stink in the nostrils of the Egyptians. You haven't delivered us at all. So they're in a, in a horrible position. God put them there. That was the sovereignty of God that put them in, a, in that exact position. It was hard enough for them to leave under those conditions. Remember how many times we remember the fish and the onions and the garlic and the leeks that we did eat freely in Egypt and you got us out here in this desert and all we get is this manna, this what is it stuff. So they were hard to deal with, stiff-necked and rebellious people all the way through. But there's some things that you and I can learn. I want to give you some reasons why God judged Egypt and then we're going to look at some compromises that Pharaoh offered there are seven reasons for the ten plagues in Egypt. Number one, it was a public manifestation of the power of God. It was going to be so supernatural, they're going to have to recognize that. In our Bible study on Monday nights, we've been looking at the book of the Revelation uh, with our men. And as we've gone through that, you just get amazed. They see the skies are rolled back, and, and they know that the, the wrath of, of the Lamb is there. And yet, they, they still don't repent. I think it was about four times in the book of Revelation 
they said this happened and that happened and this happened to them, and they repented not, and they blasphemed God. They, they cursed God for the things that were happening to them. Sin makes people do irrational things, things that just don't match. But here God's going to show the nation of Egypt his power. Secondly, it was a divine visitation on Egypt for their cruelty. God notes what nations do. And he's going to even the scales one of these days. Egypt was a fierce nation. The Assyrians were bad. The Assyrians skinned people alive. I mean, that's what they were known for doing. And these Egyptians, they got all these folks in slavery. They're trying to kill their babies. I mean, what, you know, just go on and on with the, with the viciousness and cruelty. And so God is going to weigh the scales and they're going to be dealt with. Judgment upon the gods of Egypt. In this day, most every ethnic group had a god. There was a god of, of the Babylonians, a god of the Medes and the Persians, a god of, of uh, different ones of the Canaanites. They had the same god, they just called them different names, Molech, Ashtaroth, different ones. And you just go on and they were little regional gods. And so the Lord is going to show the, the nation and he's going to show the world by doing so because Egypt's the world power at this point the mightiest nation in all the world, that their gods were no gods. They worshipped the Nile River. They worshipped cats. Uh, I've been in the Cairo Museum and seen those idols, some of them small enough to put in your pocket. And that's what you did. You carried your God with you so he could bless you and protect you and, and keep you safe. But you had to carry him with you. So judgment upon the gods of Egypt, demonstrating the superiority or the sovereignty of our Jehovah. He said, I am, and there's none beside me. You read that all the way through the book of Isaiah. It was a testing of human responsibility. The uh, Jews had to take the blood. They had to kill a lamb, take some hyssop, stick it in the blood, and put it on the sides of the doors and across the lintel. And if they didn't do that, then when God came through and, and killed the firstborn, their firstborn would die. So it was a test of human responsibility. Can, let's drive down a peg right there. Listen, salvation is of the Lord. Now, I read a thing today, and a guy said, the reason people are saved is because God chose them to be saved, and so on and so on down the line. Then he turned around and said, the reason people are not saved is because they won't believe the offer. He's out of balance. Does God know who's going to be saved? Are you kidding me? I mean, really... Why would we even debate that? God knows everything that ever has happened, ever will happen, and what would happen if what's going to happen didn't happen. Literally, He knows everything. God's not ever surprised by anything. And so to say that people are only saved because God chose them, ordained them to be saved, and ignored other people, I think is unbiblical. My God is a sovereign God who could say whosoever will and mean it. Amen? Now, you didn't get married without seeing your wife. In other words, you didn't just walk up one day and say, we're going to get married and grab a lady by the arm and go to the justice of the peace. No, you, were, you came across them. You had some interaction with them, and you began to speak with them, and you chose out a wife. I have no problem with him calling out a wife. I have zero issues with that. But I do have problems with folk who say, or with the doctrine 
of saying that only certain people can be saved because Jesus only died for certain people. Listen, he died for the world. That's what John 3.16 says. That's what 1 John 2 says. And there's many other places we could find the Word of God. There is no way to measure the atonement of Christ. But I can tell you this, it doesn't just cover the elect. It's sufficient for everybody who's ever been born and ever will be born. It's not efficient in those that don't believe, but it is sufficient for all mankind. Thank the Lord. The blood of Christ is sufficient. So it demonstrated his purity, uh, superiority. It was a test of human responsibility. It was a warning to other nations regarding the Jews. Them that bless thee, I'll bless. Them that curse thee, I'll curse. You don't fight against Jews. You don't fight against the Jewish nation. Look at history. Look at history. Where are the Assyrians? Gone. Where are the Babylonians? Gone. Where are the Chaldeans? Gone. Where are the Medes and the Persians? Gone. All that's gone. Uh, Rome? Gone. And Western nations that have turned their back on Israel are not doing too swell. I think America ought to support the nation of Israel. We ought to love Israel, and, and I, I understand they are not perfect. I understand they, uh, they have sin problem like we have, but they are the chosen people of God. And that hasn't changed because of the church's in existence. It just means that God's prophetic time clock quit ticking at the end of the 69th week, and the insertion of the church age has gone about 2,000 years, and when the, the church is raptured out, God's prophetic clock is going to begin to tick once again. And he's going to pick back up with the nation of Israel. But God was warning other nations, don't mess with my people. Those that touch Israel touch the apple of his eye, the Bible says. I wouldn't give you a used dip of snuff for a man that wouldn't protect his wife. I mean, I just, I don't have anything to, to it just doesn't work for me. I, I did some reading uh, about some things that happened over there in Israel and about some parents that laid on their children to protect them while they were being shot by Hamas and protected their kids. That's, that's a natural emotion, a normal emotion. Any one of you men would give your life to protect your wife. I know you would. I, I know you. And I know the love you have for your wife, you wouldn't allow her to be injured without you being incapacitated some way. Well, the nation of Israel is God's people. And he's not going to let the world treat them roughly unless he has a purpose involved with that. Now, he sent them away for 70 years. They'd been in the land 490 years. And they had not kept the year of the Jubilee one single time. You read about all these feasts, the the Jews didn't keep them. You read about the Passover and you read in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, you know, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, they just sporadically kept the Passover and they didn't keep the year of Jubilee at all. And so God sent them into captivity because they had not followed what he had told them to do. And he used a people more wicked than them to judge them. And then he turned around and judged those people that he'd used to judge his own because of their wickedness. So it's a warning to other nations. And then, last of all, it's an encouragement for the nation of Israel. What people have such a great, great protector as God? Now, 
Let's look at some things. I'm not going to preach too long tonight. I'm going to make myself quit early. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to make myself quit early. After the fourth plague, Pharaoh begins to offer up some compromises. The word compromise in sometimes, some places is a good word. If you and your wife want to do two different things, somebody's going to have to compromise. She wants to go to wherever she wants to eat, you know. Of course, every woman wants to go to, I don't know and I don't care, a restaurant. And so you're trying to find that restaurant. And when you find one, they say, no, that's not the right, I don't know and I don't care restaurant. And so you have to compromise and say, okay, tell me where you do want to eat. Give me, give me one that's, that fits. And so we, we work at things. Compromise means you work things out. You can't do that with your faith. I'm not in any position to negotiate with the world about what I believe, and the world's not in any position to negotiate with me about it. Compromise usually means you have to give up something. And we can't give up anything in the Word of God. There's, there's nothing in here. Now, I understand there's some things that we can diff, differ on, disagree on, but that doesn't mean I'm willing to just take it out of the Bible and throw it away and say it doesn't matter. We independent Baptists have held tenaciously to the Bible. Oz Guinness, who's one of my favorite writers, uh, Oz Guinness is, uh, I think, a Southern Baptist fellow, great writer. Uh, he's intellect like C.S. Lewis or Francis Schaeffer, written some wonderful books. And it, one of his books, Dining with the Devil, <laughs> said you got to have a long-handled spoon if you're going to do that. But he made this statement. He said, one thing about the independent, the fundamental Baptist churches, is they have held tenaciously to the Word of God. Sometimes we've been so doctrinaire that we've, we've forgotten to be kind and loving, but we cannot surrender our, our faith, our belief, our positions in the Word of God. We just, they're not negotiable. Doesn't mean we can't get along with other people. It does mean that we're not going to surrender, run up a white flag, or knock a chip out of, of the rock of which we believe and, and try to use that to get along. Let me give you some compromises here. Number one is in chapter 8, chapter number 8, and verse 25. And Pharaoh called for Moses and for Aaron and said, Go ye, sacrifice to your God in the land. Now back up just a little bit. And you'll find in verse 24 that there came a grievous swarm of flies into the house of Pharaoh. Uh, there's another time when the frogs come. I've always loved that one. Moses talks to him about it and Pharaoh says, get rid of these frogs. Please get rid of these frogs. When do you want me to do that tomorrow? Now, if you go home tonight and your wife finds 150 or 200 frogs in the house, and she says, get rid of these frogs. Okay, honey, I'll do that first thing in the morning. If you guys got beards, you won't have them anymore. She'll jerk it out. My wife wouldn't put up with that for one. I mean, if one frog got in the house, I'm going to be hunting it. Got to find where it went. I can't imagine Pharaoh saying tomorrow, well, here they have flies. I hate flies. I detest them. They're so nasty, awful things. I was in a restaurant one day getting ready to dip out my 
salad dressing, and I looked there, and there's a big old fly just floating in the middle of it. I called the, one of the servers over. I said, I need to show you something. And she said, Ooh. off it went, you know, and I get, hope they got a fresh bucket and put it out there. Flies, just nasty flies. You know how they are. And so the land's covered with these flies. And so now Pharaoh says, all right, you can go, but I want you to stay in the land and you can go worship God. So the first compromise is this. Don't separate from us. Stay in the land. I just need to tell you this. If you're going to worship God, you're going to have to get out from amongst them. Um, in, in the book of Psalms, I think it's Psalm 137, they, the Babylonians wanted them to, uh, to sing a song. Sing a song of Israel. And they said, we've hung our harps on the, on the willow tree. How can we sing the Lord's song in this foreign land? And I want to tell you, you cannot fellowship with God in fellowship with this world. It's not going to work. Worship in the land is compromise. We cannot adapt to the world and still worship the God of the Bible. That's why we don't sing certain types of music. Somebody has to make that decision, and I, I believe it's the pastor that makes the decision about the music uh, genre that's used in church. But some of this stuff that, that's on the radio and on YouTube is so wild that I don't see how they dare call it Christian. Yet they do. Now, if that's what they want to do and somebody wants to do in their church, that's their business. But we're not going to do it here because it sounds, to me, just worldly. Trying to, well, you know, everybody likes that now. And, and, you know, look, we've been singing these hymns, some of them, for six and seven and eight hundred years. Oh, they about wore out then. Well, I hadn't got tired of Amazing Grace yet. I don't know about you. I hadn't, got, I hadn't worn it out. I think I could sing it at least one more time. And so there, there's these compromises that are thrown out and do this and do that. Use these means to get people into church and use that means. There's an old saying that goes around amongst preachers. What you use to win them, you got to use to keep them. That's why we don't do uh, gimmicks. You know, we're not going to have an elephant, baby elephant, walk up the center aisle. We're not going to ride horses up in the auditorium. You know, we, I'm not swallowing any goldfish. You want somebody to do that, you ask Pastor Barron. I, pastor's not swallowing any goldfish. And I know independent Baptists have done some of that stuff. We've just chosen not to. Not because I'm angry at those that do, but because I don't see that as a, as a good means of, of leading to worship in the church. Look with me in a couple of places. Look in Hebrews chapter 13. Hold your place here. We're coming back. Hebrews 13. And verse 13. Let us therefore, let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. Jesus was crucified outside the city. You read about going out of the, the congregation in the Old Testament. And the picture is, this is an illustration, it's not a doctrine at that point, but it is a picture of God's people separating themselves from unbelievers. 
It's hard to worship with a bunch of unbelievers around. I read a thing the other day where a fellow was in a restaurant, he and his wife and his children, and they got their food and they bowed their head and started praying. And the man in the table next to him started making fun of them, laughing, joking, teasing. When they got through, his wife started in uh, doing such things. We're going to see more and more of that. It just happens. They're, they don't want to be around folks that worship in God. And quite frankly, I don't want anybody throwing a wet blanket on my worship. Look in John chapter 15. John chapter 15. That compromise. Stay in the land. It's right if you worship, but just don't go too far away. Stay, stay right up here where I can watch you. That's the idea that he's trying to promote. John chapter 15 and verse 19. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Look in chapter 17, verse 14. I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Now we're in the world, we live in it, and we like it. It's nice. Uh, the temperature today has been very cool, been kind of cloudy, nice uh, exchange for what we've been having and uh, we see the leaves will begin to change and hopefully we'll have a lot of colorful stuff in the fall I don't mind being in the world but I sure don't want to be of the world have the attitude that I don't need God who's the Lord that I should let Israel go Pharaoh said well after the flies and that was the fourth plague he said okay I'll let you worship just don't go very far. Stay in the land. Well, verse 26. Moses said, It is not meat so to do, for we shall sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. And shepherds, sheep, were an abomination to, to Egyptians. Lo, shall we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, and will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he, hath, as he shall command. And Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Oh, see this compromise? He's moving. He's moving. Only ye shall not go where? Very far away. Don't become fanatical. That's what they're saying. Don't become a Jesus fanatic. I mean, every time we hear you, you got to talk about Jesus. Every time we eat, you got to say the blessing, whether we want to or not. I mean, you're a fanatic. We lived in South Carolina and lived in a little settlement. They kind of was a U-shape off the side of a highway there, and they built some, some houses back in there, heavily wooded. And we managed to get a house and start making payments on it. And we went to church every service. And if, they, if our church had revival or missions conference, we went to that too. And so the neighbors got to calling us the churchy people. How do you, you know how we found that out? One of the ladies came up and kind of befriended us. There was a guy that built our house, and his wife had lost a couple of children, and she was explaining what they had to do. And she had a, a weak cervix or something. I don't remember exactly what the issue was, but she'd lost a couple of babies, and she got started talking to us. She said, you know what they say about you around here, don't you? You're churchy. Well, that's not too bad. I got called a Satanist the other day. And I've been called a lot of things, but that's a brand new one. 
I hadn't had that one hung around my neck. It's because I said something negative about Hamas. I said, you're a Satanist. Well, to the world, we're fanatics. You're here on Sunday night. You're already fanatical. Listen, if you've got enough grace to get you to heaven, you don't fit in with this world anyway. You're a square peg in a round hole. Just not going to work. So the compromise at first is, well, just stay here with us. You don't have to separate from the, from the world. Just be like us, and you can sing about Jesus. We don't care. Just don't, just don't go away. Well, when you say, i got to go. Well, just don't get too far over there. You know where you go to church every service. I bet you even read your Bible at home, don't you? The world is really saying, don't be dedicated to the Lord. That's what they're saying. Love not the world, neither things are in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, pride of life, not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world and the lust thereof passeth away. Just don't get too fanatical. Don't go too far. You, get, you just go a little bit. But don't be one of these fanatics for Jesus. I'd rather be that than anything else I can think of. You remember a guy by the name of Demas in the New Testament? He was Paul's buddy. He was Paul's friend on some of the missionary journeys. But when you get down to the place to where Paul's head's about to be taken off in 2 Timothy, he said this, Demas hath forsaken me. Not because he was scared, but because he loved this present world. Look with me in the book of First John, excuse me, Colossians. We're just, I've already mentioned First John. Look in Colossians for a moment. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 3 and verse 1. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth. Just go on and get out in the wilderness as far as the world's concerned. Get away and worship God. Abraham left everything. He was in Ur of the Chaldees. He's probably a son of a priest, we believe. Worshiping the moon god over there in, in Mesopotamia, Ur of the Chaldees. And God said to him, I want you to leave. Leave your country, leave your kindred, leave everything behind and go to the place that I'll show thee of. Abraham left it all. Now he went to uh, Haran and stayed there a while until his daddy died. Then he went on down into Canaan. It's going to be a price to pay. People may mock you and laugh at you. Let them laugh. God's going to have the last laugh. Let me read another verse to you over here. I won't make you flip through your Bible so much. It's not a sword drill tonight. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present life and in the world to come, life everlasting. We have to live a life of separation. That doesn't mean a life of isolation. Those are two different things. You cannot isolate yourself. But you can insulate yourself. 
Well, let's look at the third compromise that's offered. Look in chapter number 10. Chapter number 10 and verse number 8. They've had some more plagues. We're up to the eighth plague. And they're going to get locusts and different things. Uh, verse 5, they shall cover, uh, cover the face of the earth and that one uh, cannot be able to see the earth and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which re remaineth unto you from the hail and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. I mean, things are going to get bad. So here's the compromise. Verse 8, Moses and Aaron were brought again unto Pharaoh and he said unto them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But who are they that shall go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and with our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and with our herds will we go, for we must hold a feast unto the Lord. And he, Pharaoh, said, Let the Lord be so with you as I will let you go, and your little ones look to it, for evil is before you. Not so. Go now ye that are men, and serve the Lord, for that ye did desire. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Leave your children behind. We live in a day when many parents let their children tell them how the house is going to be run. Amen. The kids decide if the family's going to church or not. The kids decide this, the kids decide that. One of the biggest questions we get in the ministry now is what does a church have for my children? I understand that question. And I, I, it doesn't really bother me. So long as they are weighing the pulpit ministry is the most important part of what goes on. I don't find any place in the Bible where I'm required to entertain children. Do, I, do we do it here? Sure we do. We love the kids. We want them to know we love them. It's a means. It's, a, it's a, an approach. It's the way we reach them. When I was in Bible college, y'all get a hoot out of this. Dr. Seitler, Miss Wanda, you might remember him saying something like this. He was asked about a youth ministry. A tabernacle ran about 1,500 on Sunday mornings. I mean, a big church. Had a Christian school, 600 and some odd in it. Had a children's home with maybe 100 kids in it. It's a big church. And somebody said something to Dr. Sotler about it. And anyway, he must have got asked more than once. Because he got in the pulpit and said, somebody been asking me about youth ministry. He said, here it is. You bring them, I preach. <laughs> That's it. He didn't like children's church. This is what he said about children's church. Communist. Taking them kids away from their parents. And I understand. Different generation. And, and I'm not making fun of my pastor. I love my pastor. I wish he's alive today so I could talk to him. But there have been some cultural changes that are not sinful changes for us to use. It's a means. It's a means. Early days of the, the church here in America, you think they had grand pianos that they toted around everywhere? They had banjos. And fiddles, they probably weren't even violins back in those days, just fiddles. And they just did the best they could. As, as we have been blessed, God's, we got a nice organ, we have a clavinova, we've got a nice piano. We, you know, we can enjoy those things and use them. 
Are they absolutely necessary? The answer is no. But they do add to the service and we use them to be a part of worship just like our ministry with kids. We spend a lot of money on them and I'm glad to do it. Pastor Taylor didn't have to beg me to increase the youth budget this year. I sat down with him. I said, what's going on? What do you need to do? And we talked it out and we compromised. No, we didn't. We said, okay, we got to do this to reach the kids. We got to, this is how we're using this means to minister to these kids. It doesn't say that it's in the Bible that we use those means, but it, as our uh, ability comes and we have the opportunity, we use certain approaches to reach the children. But I'm not going to leave them behind. We're going to tell them the same truth that we tell you. Now, we're going to do it age appropriate. You know, I, I wouldn't go to a, a sixth grade class, or a, a, let's put, I wouldn't go in with a bunch of six year olds and just preach a hot sermon on hell to them. I think that'd be as unwise as it could be. But I'm not going to hide the truth of hell from them. When we were in Bible college, they told us, don't go to a nursing home and preach on hell. We'd had some guy that had gone in from college and preached so so bad on hell that it had caused some disruption, quite a bit of disruption with some of the people who were in the nursing home. So they just told us, don't do it. Well, I, I don't think I would have anyway. As old as they were, they needed to hear about heaven. I, I met a fellow in the nursing home who was 105 years old who got saved when he was 100. I just wanted to sit there and marvel. And, and people need encouragement. So we use different means. Listen, the, the Bible says in the book of Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That's not a guarantee that if you teach them the gospel that they will be born again, but it is a guarantee that what you teach them will stick with them. They won't be able to get away from it. It, it requires grace. Uh, you, if you'll remember, Samuel had 70 sons and they were all bribe takers. But we must inculcate into our children, our teenagers, our college kids, the same truth that's preached from the pulpit. And I believe the pulpit ministry of any local church is its single most important ministry. It's not the only ministry, but it's the most important. What does the Word of God say? But the world wants you to leave your kids behind. Don't force your kids to do that. Don't make them come to church when, you know, the game's on or a Disney movie's on or something. Let them, let them stay home. Let them do this. Let them do that. How did we get to where we are? Did we get to church? Uh, did we get to where we are by coming to church once a, a week or once a month? No, our forefathers came to church as much as they possibly could. Don't leave your children behind. We have a duty. We have a duty to teach our children. Psalm 78. Flip over to Psalm 78 for just a minute. Verse, well, we'll read verse 2 and following. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Jacob 
and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even their children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. Don't let the world talk you into leaving your kids out. Don't let the world pressure you in that you got your children involved in too much at church. It can happen, I understand. But I don't think we're so busy here that we're, in, we're going to violate that. Uh, matter of fact, when Pastor Taylor came on staff, uh, I had learned by experience how important it is to be home with your family. And I said, I want you to average three nights a week at home. Well, you got Sunday night and Wednesday nights already tied up, and three more is five, and some ministry has to be done at night. Uh, you know, the people work, and so sometimes we have to minister in the later hours of the day, and, and I don't mind that, not complaining. But it is important that we spend time with our children and build into them the things that we believe, expose them to the truth that we hold to so dearly. Don't compromise and let your children tell you what they're going to do. As nicely as I know how to say this, they are not knowledgeable enough to make those decisions about those things. And I'm not trying to be harsh or mean in any way, but I'm just being honest. Our children are our heart. My heart's wrapped around my children. Isn't yours? My heart's wrapped around my grandbabies. It thrilled me no end to see Noah this morning. And Zachary was able to bring him to church. I, my heart's wrapped around them. I'm not going to leave them in Egypt. I can't guarantee they're all going to go to heaven, but if they don't, it won't be because I didn't tell them or I didn't try to show them Christ. Don't leave your children behind. Oh, don't force that down your children's throat. Well, the devil's forcing plenty down their throat. And you can choose methodology. I'm, you know, we've used to tease. You're having devotions and you're reading with your children and they get wiggly and stuff. And you smack them on the leg. We're over here trying to worship Jesus, kid. Babe. Adapt what you're doing for their age. If they're wiggly and squiggly and all that stuff, stop and sing a song with them. Do something different. Don't try to read Psalm 119 to them in one setting and say, we've got to read a chapter every night. Pick out different portions of Scripture. And find things that are, that are filled up with truth and, and the things that children can grab. You'll be amazed what children can grab anyway. So that compromise is leave your children behind. Leave your heart behind. Look in chapter 10 and verse 24. I'll be done. And Pharaoh called unto Moses and said, Go ye, go ye serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. And Moses said... Thou must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not be a hoof left behind. Why, well, like Moses, don't you? For therefore we must take to serve the Lord our God, and we know not with what we must serve the Lord until we come hither. Here's the last compromise. Don't support Christianity financially. The word tithe scares some Christians plumb to death. They skinch up all over. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
It's hollow service if we're not willing to sacrifice. David had had the nation of Israel counted by Joab. The prophet comes to him and said, you've sinned. He said, I know, I'm sorry, forgive me. And he said, well, you've got three choices. You can be chased by your enemies for three months. You can have, I forgot, was it three weeks of pestilence or three days of God judging you. And he said, let me fall into the hands of the Lord because his mercies are great. Let me not fall into the hands of men. Well, you know what happened? 70,000 men died. And David finally sees the angel, the Lord with his sword drawn, heading towards Jerusalem. And he goes to the, the threshing floor of Aruna. And he says, uh, I need this. I need this place, this land right here. I've got a sacrifice. And he said to stop this plague. And Aruna said, here's the threshing floor. Here's the animals, my oxen. And the instruments they've been using to work the fields with, break them up, cut them, burn them. And the Bible says, as a king, he gave that to King David. You know what David said? No. I will not sacrifice to God that which doesn't cost me anything. That's the right attitude. He said, I'm not going to give something to God that doesn't cost me. And so he paid richly for the threshing floor and for the oxen and for the instruments. There was a big temptation to just compromise and just not give. Does God hold a title to everything you have? What did Moses say? Not a hoof. We're not leaving one animal behind. We're taking everything we got and going all out for God. That's, the, that's the, what you and I need to do. It's not God's normal means or normal way of taking everything you have as, a, as an offering. R.G. Letourneau, you, know, you ever seen Letourneau machinery? How many of y'all have seen that on large places where they're working with doing dirt moving and stuff? He started out and told God, if you'll, if you'll bless me, I'll give you 10%. God blessed him, and as he grew, he said, I'm going to give this much, and give this much, and give this much. And eventually, if my understanding's proper, and my memory serves me right, he was given 95% of his profit and living on five. Now, that's not the norm. I don't think anybody in here is doing that. But God raised him up and did that through him. I don't know if you know it, but J.B. Hunt, you remember the treasury and all those stores? It was a Christian. Gave his fortune away two different times. Just gave it all away. Are we willing to go all out for God to say, all right, Lord, here I am. Everything I have belongs to you. Give it to him and let him give it back to you. You'll be blessed. These are the compromises that Pharaoh offered in their pictures of what the world is trying to get us to do. Stay in the land. Don't go very far. Leave your children. If that doesn't work, just leave your wealth behind. You know what the devil's really saying? If you really must be a Christian, don't let it spoil your life. That's what he's saying to us. And we echo back to him. We'd rather serve God. We'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of our Lord than, than to dwell in the tents 
of the wicked. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Compromises abound. The devil wants you to compromise with your flesh. Your flesh wants you to compromise with the world. Oh, we've got a sharp battle. What a blessed thing it is, though, when you just choose to do right and let God bless it and honor it in your life. Israel left out. They spoiled the nation of Egypt when they went. And when the Egyptians chased after them, God used the Red Sea to drown the Egyptian army and broke the nation of Egypt, and they've never been a world power since that day. God can bless you, and He will. God will honor in your life the decisions you make to not compromise with the world. Father, bless your people. Thank you for truth. May we live it out, Father. May we apply it day by day in our life. In Christ's name, amen. Let's sing, brother, what number?